welcome to It Just So Happened. Hey. Hey. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 9th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So where are we? Well, it's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk round. It's where Harry Potter was conceived. And a place renowned for its smell. Once known as Old Ricky, yes, it's Edinburgh. <laughs> we are performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world. And our venue this afternoon is The Space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfer and completed in 1832, it's one of the many category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today. As the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year, so we welcome about one one-hundred-thousandth <laughs> of that number to this show. But what's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. We have Chris Leeworthy and Alex Hiscock. <laughs> so, uh, Chris Leeworthy is a one-liner comedian from Devon. The late Cornish comedian Jethro once watched you perform and described your act as utter chaos. Utter chaos. That, My good be... friend Jethro, yes. Yes, yes. He's, a, he's a lovely guy. Yes. <laughs> um, so, do you often perform outside of Devon? Um, obviously, well, obviously Cornwall. Uh, that's where Jeffrey's from. Yes. But yeah. um, um, being from North Devon, as far as I can drive after my day's work of being a graphic designer, um, I can get to Bristol. And that's about as far as I can get. Wow. So, uh, yes. So I'm limited to. Yes. Uh, and you're still dressed for the, the, uh, the south some, of England. Exactly. Seems, so. Yes, I'm kind yeah. of dressed as a farmer. So. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, oh, yeah. I'm. I'm a historian, general geek. Um, improviser for hire. Um, I, the last thing I think I worked on was horrible histories. Uh, and oh, and I just learnt a lot about testicles on behalf of Richard Herring. She assured me it was for a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to be paid, so <laughs> I hope it was. Mm. Thank you. Uh, so now straight over to you, Chris, for your piece, please. Oh, about uh, on some, this day. On this day in yes. history. Well, okay, right. So that's. Um, I thought um, I thought I'd tell you um, about uh, a birthday. Um, it's a celebrity birthday today. Um, I wonder if you can probably guess whose celebrity birthday it is. Um, judged by the music, I think you know. Yeah, because on this day in history, it's not Pe P Princess Beatrice. No. <laughs> uh, it's not, uh, there was a guy called Salt Bay. Now, Salt Bay was an internet guy who used to sprinkle salt from his elbow like that. It's not his birthday. It's Whitney Houston's birthday today. So uh, I thought I'd tell I'm a big fan of Whitney Houston. Um, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit, uh, a little bit about her. Um, it, she's actually my favourite musician. Um, passed away, sadly, in 2012 on the 11th of February. Um, people say you shouldn't joke about people like Whitney Houston who have died. And, and I agree. It's not right, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, I told my wife I was going to do Whitney Houston puns and she said uh, make sure you don't offend anyone I, I looked at her and said how will I know how will I know <laughs> I, I said to my wife I said, <laughs> I said um, 
I asked if she'd seen the deodorant advert that Whitney Houston starred in. She said, sure. I said, actually, it was Bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then my wife started making puns um, about Whitney Houston's uh, husband, Bobby Brown. Uh, I thought, right, so you can play at that game. <laughs> Fun fact for you, Bobby Brown. He's <laughs> Bobby Brown is actually made up of 1,000 Millie Bobby Browns. <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown's an actor. Uh, not factually correct, actually. <laughs> I was uh, I was actually lucky enough to bump into uh, Whitney Houston 15 years ago at my local bird sanctuary. Uh, I was walking around, turned around the corner, and there she was, sat, surrounded by feathers, with a razor. I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "I'm shaving all my doves for you." <laughs> Tedious, Richard, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, um, I said, you've not shaved all of them. Why have you not shaved this one? And she says, that is the greatest dove of all. <laughs> she said, help yourself to one of them. I said, why? She said, my dove is your dove. <laughs> uh, then she invited me into the kitchen. She opened the refrigerator, and on the shelf were four birds. I asked why they're in there, and she said, I believe the chilled wrens are our future. <laughs> you believe I just wrote this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, um, that is all I have on my favourite musician. That's really lovely. Houston. You can do anything in the show. So oh, there you go. As I proved. Thank yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you. All. <laughs> so I'm going to do a couple of segue pieces. So the first I've got on this day. It was way, way back before Whitney Houston. Mm. So what building had its foundation stone laid on this day in 1173? So more questions mm. to, to the panel here. Um, it's going to be older than the Albert Hall. Mm. A lot older. Because he's 19th century. Mm. I'm a historian. <laughs> um, Tower of London? I'm going to go with the Houses of Parliament. No, so uh, uh, you were allowed to go outside the UK. Oh, oh. So it was the Tower of Pisa. Ah, oh, oh, the Tower part. Because right. the Tower of Pisa, because it wasn't leaning there. So. Uh, what exactly is the Tower of Pisa? We're familiar with the building, but what actually is it? It's, uh, I believe it's a bell tower. Mm. Or it was. I don't know if there's any bells still in it. Yeah, so, uh, so it's the Campanile or freestanding bell tower of Pisa Cathedral. So it doesn't actually form part of the main building it's just separate so i've got this down to very minute detail but the, the reason is it's because it's leaning so the height of the tower is 55.86 meters from the ground on the low side and 56.67 meters on the high side the width of the walls at the base are 2.44 meters so that's about eight feet in old money it's been estimated to weigh 14 and a half thousand tons and the tower has nearly 300 steps. So why did the tower start to lean almost as soon as construction had started? I don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Personal choice. It's probably something to do with the ground, foundations. Mm. So they, they built it on soft ground. Yeah. And, and, and I've, as already intimated, it, it was a heavy thing. But it started leaning almost at the start. How long do you think it took to build? So we're talking about many centuries ago. 
You're not allowed to look at the answers. Fair enough. My eyesight's not that good, to be fair. You're going to borrow my glasses. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> right how, how many years did it take to be yeah. able to... Given this was a medieval yeah. building. Oh, I think it was 67. 67? 67 years. 67, not yeah. 6 to 7. 6 to 7. 6 to 7. No. 67. <laughs> I've, I've cheated because I've read, not that, um, a little bit about the Tower of Pisa. Didn't they stop and start over a long period of time? Presumably when it started leaning, they went, maybe we shouldn't keep building this very tall tower. Well, I'm not sure if that was the reason. Construction was in stages and mm. it took a total of 199 years. The Republic of Pisa was almost continually engaged in battles with Genoa, Lucca and Florence. Um, but at least this allowed time for the underlying soil to settle, so there was kind of good news and bad news there. <laughs> so um, so last time I visited the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it was about 32 degrees, which I think you agreed, pretty warm. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, the tower has actually survived f at least four strong earthquakes, which have hit the region since 1280. Right. So it's, it's not as bad as it looks in that sense. Galileo... Galilei, lived in Pisa for a while between 1589 and 1592 and could reportedly be seen dropping two cannonballs from the top of the tower. Why did he do this? Um, is it to measure some, something to do with gravity? Or is it imagine? to do with the Earth's curve? Couldn't afford a cannon? Let's <laughs> <laughs> drop it on people's the heads. Tourists. Uh, yeah, the tourists. Yeah. So it's uh, what I thought was a famous experiment for uh, demonstrating that objects of different masses descend at the same speed. So this is physics now rather than history, in keeping with the law of free fall. During World War II, the Allies suspected that the Germans were using the tower as an observation post. Leon Wechstein, a US Army sergeant, sent to confirm the presence of German troops in the tower was impressed by the beauty of the cathedral and its campanile, and thus refrained from ordering an artillery strike, sparing it from destruction. So it very, came pretty close to It's very good of him. It was, yes. <laughs> Often very. history turns on individuals doing small things that turn out to be big things. So uh, you were saying by uh, how many degrees, which oh, is obviously no. a joke. Yeah, it was a joke, yeah. But how, by how much does it lean? 18 degrees. 18 degrees. Six. Yeah, it's actually not that much. It's only 3.97 if you wanted it to two decimal places. It had reached 5.5 by 1990. So it doesn't sound like a lot, does it? It's obviously quite visible how much. Maybe the earthquakes balanced it out a bit. Yeah, it was all going yeah. on. Yeah. It shook and went the other way. <laughs> well, there was construction work done to try and rectify some of the leaning, uh, mm. but only to a certain extent. Is the Leaning Tower of Pisa the most leaning building in the world? Is there, an, is there another? Has someone stolen their thunder? Is it yes or no? Well, I know, I'm trying to think, will it be? Um, <laughs> yes, it is. It, it isn't, oh, I'm okay. afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, according to the Guinness World Records, the late medieval steeple in Surhusen, in the northwest of Germany, the Schieferturm von Surhusen, is the world's most leaning tower that is unintentionally tilted, beating the leaning tower of Pisa by 1.22 degrees. And that brings me to the end of my piece. And it would have been over to Robert, but now it's over to us. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, so um, August 9th uh, is um, the date of the annual, in the Roman world, I'm a Romanist, is the date of the Roman uh, sacrifice to the Roman god Sol, um, the chief sun god in the Roman pantheon, and uh, all-round life bringer in the Roman world. 
Though we tend to think of Jupiter, Mars, and much later, you know, Jesus Christ, and a Christian god as the big deities of ancient Rome. Uh, Sol was a key constant throughout, throughout the Republic and the Empire, um, and far more than just being honoured on this day, uh, Sol's importance can be tracked at some of the very key moments and intrigues um, of the Roman emperors and their courts. Um, and I'm going to talk about one today. So, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, there was a large temple of Sol in the Circus Maximus, which is uh, the track for Roman chariot races um, that is built and expanded uh, over, over the course of the Empire and Republic. Um, now, it was in this temple that the last failed conspiracy to kill the Emperor Nero was planned and led by the senator and general playboy Gaius Calpurnius Piso in 65 AD. Now, Nero is infamously recorded as a pretty disastrous, uh, lecherous and corrupt leader uh, in ancient Rome, which is a characterization quite impressive amongst a group that includes um, purveyors of serial incest, um, burning of relatives alive, and variously feeding people to animals uh, for entertainment of the masses. Uh, but the Roman senators themselves were not much better. Uh, but, and the thing that annoyed them about Nero wasn't, wasn't his various um, evil plots. It was that, um, that Nero's, Nero was despotic and he didn't share in his power. Nero was decadent, which would have been fine, but he was decadent alone and let senators and their wealth literally burn for his own ego. Now, in the Pisoan conspiracy, uh, the conspirators had hoped to kill Nero initially at sea, as the emperor frequently liked to sail and recline off the shores of Italy, um, but couldn't find anyone in the fleet who would help them. Um, so they instead decided to lure him to Piso's villa for a party, uh, very specifically a bath and a banquet. Um, but Piso refused on the grounds that it wouldn't be good for hospitality's sake, uh, and he had a reputation to, to maintain, and killing someone at a party wouldn't have exactly... Most guests wouldn't have come back. Um, however, a third plan was devised. Uh, the emperor loved um, loved going to the chariot racing when he wasn't sunning himself in the ocean or bathing and feasting. Um, so here, the conspirators would pin, pin would attempt to pin the emperor's down emperor down. As Tacitus relates, those who those who had sufficient daring were to rush up and do the murder. Now all was set up. But the night before, one conspirator uh, by the name of Scavenus prepared their effects, wrote their will, prepared medicines and bindings for any wounds they may incur in the morning, and sent their servant, Milicus, to sharpen a dagger. Now, Milicus knew what was going on, but out of fear for what would happen to his master should he fail, he walked instead to Nero's palace and betrayed his plan to the guards and eventually the emperor himself, hoping for mercy for his master, which was obviously not the case. Um, that Nero had every conspirator summoned, Scavius included, um, but Scavius denied his accusations. The dagger was but a fam family heirloom, the will reasonable legal practice for creditors who needed proof of his wealth, and the medicines just good hygiene, because he was known for his bad, bad, bad breath and bad body odour, famously. Um, and uh, as for Milicus's character, uh, he was just a servant with a grudge. However, Milicus having had this insult, spilled even more, listed every single conspirator, made a few up, and each were called in and cast in irons and tortured for their part in the conspiracy. Scavius was killed fairly early on, along with 18 other eminent members of Rome, and Piso himself was given the honour of being allowed to kill himself. But after killing the alleged perpetrators, confiscating their wealth and burning down their homes, 
Nero hosted a great sacrifice at the Temple of Sol in the Circus Maximus. For he reasoned that the deity at this temple, where he himself was to have been killed, had in some way listened to the plan, and through his love and favour for the immodest emperor, had often had offered divine protection. And that is how an attempted yet failed assassination of Emperor Nero reinforced and propelled Sol in the Roman pantheon to be honest to be honoured on August 9th every year until its eventual dissolution in the fourth century to Christ. Thank you very much. You're very <laughs> so my second segue piece, right? Mm -hmm. A bit more modern. How did Thor first clean things up in the US? How did Thor mm. as in as in what? Yes. Thor, Nordic god of lightning. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult question. I, um, yeah. I, I wouldn't <laughs> expect you to know. Uh, Thor was the name of the first electrically powered clothes washer ah. manufactured and sold in the US. So you can hazard a guess maybe what year do you think it might have been invented for the first electric washing machine? Any ideas? <laughs> no, we've got nothing. Okay, it was 1907. 1907. Yeah. So the patent for the machine, designed by engineer Alva J. Fisher, was issued on this day in 1910. So three years later, for some reason. Now, the Chicago-based Hurley Electric Laundry Equipment Company mass-marketed Thor throughout the U.S. from 1908 onwards, which makes you wonder how Wash Day didn't become a Thor's Day. Hey. Oh. <laughs> how, come, how come I get grounds and he didn't? <laughs> uh, Mention Whitney Houston. It's yes, fine. I'll yeah, yeah. All right, I'll try. Uh, although a company named 1900 Washing Machine Company of Binghamton, New York, claims to have produced the first electric washer in 1906, mm -hmm. it wasn't mass marketed. So I don't know who is whitewashing whom. <laughs> I'll, I should. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yes. So the patent for Thor stated that a perforated cylinder is ro rotatably mounted within the tub containing the wash water. It had a series of blades which lifted the clothes as the cylinder rotated. After eight rotations in one direction, the machine would reverse rotation mm. to prevent the clothes from wadding up into a compact mass. The design also included a clutch. <laughs> that starts to get a bit bizarre, doesn't it? Uh, which allowed the machine to switch direction and an emergency stop rod. So, you just don't seem to have those bits anymore. No. However, it didn't have a high-speed spin cycle, and it still featured a clothes wringer. Mm. In the 1940s, Thor introduced the Automagic Hybrid Washer Stroke Dishwasher. The top-loading machine included both a removable clothes washing drum and a dishwashing drum. The Automagic was widely marketed. Question. Why didn't it last long after its introduction? I can think of many reasons. <laughs> um, I mean, presumably people were getting modded up and loading the wrong thing and it was all going, can I swear on this? <laughs> I had the C word in last in yesterday's going, show. So. Tits up. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Do you think it would have worked? I, I, no, I think all the plates would have smashed. Mm. It, going back and forward. It, it was actually just that consumers didn't like the idea of washing dirty clothes and dishes in the same <laughs> oh, machine. Yeah. Oh, that was actually true. the main reason. So, but I'm sure these things might have happened as well. Just, just as a. Oh, did you want to say something? No, I was going to say it's, it's a time of great invention. The early 20th century. We have the invention of the fridge, 
and my favourite invention, which is, comes from 1921, which is the baby cage, um, is exactly how it sounds. Hmm. Uh, so obviously, uh, early, uh, early 20th century is uh, a time of high-rise buildings, and where better to store your baby in one of those than on the outside of one? Um, so you would, get, you would get a cage, and it would be built almost like an air conditioning unit and stuck out of the window. <laughs> And it would have a thing where you could seal seal baby inside, and they would. And the idea was they would get fresh air inside these closed things, and yeah. it was usually grated. Different ones had various level of protection for the baby. Some were open air. Obviously, they didn't last, and probably neither did yeah. the baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was just absolutely bonkers, and it only they only went out of fashion during World War Two. Um, oh. For obvious reasons, yes. yeah. um, not cars, smog, that didn't put them off, but German bombers did. Yeah. Um, that seems fair enough, but they didn't come back afterwards. So they didn't come back afterwards, yeah. I think people decided to keep their children indoors and stay, <laughs> which is and, very... And catch all sorts of allergies instead. Yeah, indeed. Um, hmm. That's interesting, thank you. Just out of interest, how many people in the world do you think now still hand wash their clothes, given that we've had washing machines for over 100 years now? If there were seven billion people in the world as of 2010, yeah. 500 million, 500 million, quite quite I'd say, um, I reckon it's two thirds of people. Yeah, probably, it's five billion, so that is oh, about yeah. two thirds, isn't it? Yeah. So I, we take, you know, we grunt and groan about these modern appliances, but actually most of the world don't have access to them even now, so <coughs> worth bearing in mind, unless you still do your hand washing, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Right, I've done your piece. So we'll move swiftly on now to the second half of the show, which is about where we uncover some of the history of Edinburgh. Now, as our venue today is Surgeons Hall, it seems only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. Sorry if you're struggling with these questions, That's but right, you can yeah. guess randomly if you want. <laughs> when was the first legal dissection carried out in Scotland? Well, um, I'm assuming dissection of a human body. Oh, sad. good point. Yeah. No, one's, no one's made that. Point yet. So, yes, I'm talking of a human body. Yes. Human body. 400 AD. 400 AD. <laughs> Don't know. I need to say, I actually got a, <laughs> <laughs> I got an, I had an E in GCSE history. <laughs> and I was so out of it, I didn't hand in any coursework. So, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> the Romans did get this far and they did have laws, so I imagine oh. they probably chopped people up. If I'm right on this, this is going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I would guess early 18th century. It's not a fun answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just know. <laughs> that, that is very correct. So it was actually 1702. Oh, so close. 1702. So yeah, <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't talk about Scots law yeah, so, and yeah, rather than Roman yeah, law. Exactly. Is there a point system on this? Do I get points? There doesn't need to be a point system. We all know how <laughs> it's going to go. To be fair, it doesn't really matter. To be fair, the, the points on that side are... <laughs> So, yeah, 1702. Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. Do, do you happen to know anything about the first person who was dissected? Um, over you, you probably don't know the person. No, so, I don't. So, yeah, so it was a guy called David Miles. He was executed on 27th November for incest. His sister bore his child, and the village found the corpse on the midden heap. Even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged, so was his sister, <coughs> and authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the cutting tables before. So what trade of person do you think got that gig? Oh, wow. Um, I'm going to say something random. I'm going to say a baker. 
I was going to say a butcher, but then presumably a candlestick maker would also turn. Yes, <laughs> it's going that way, isn't it? Yeah. It was actually chimney sweeps. Oh, not quite sure why, but uh, they were whinging though about the cost of the lead weights to hold the cloth down over the corpse as they moved it through the city, in a seemly manner, which is a bit odd, bearing in mind that half the city had already turned up to watch the execution anyway. Why were they so worried about propriety in that sense? Now. Apologies, that this does start to get a bit gruesome because we're talking about surgery and dissection and so on, so little um, disclaimer here. But how long do you think that first dissection took, given that it was their first opportunity to have a proper go with it? Not too long, because then it get, things start rotting. Mm. Um, yeah. Imagine oh, three or four days. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going longer. I'm going to go, go eight days. Whoa! Ooh. If there were points... Oh yeah, yeah. it would almost be getting because it was nine days. Oh, there you nine go. Days. I wasn't. Uh, I don't know why I'm getting so excited about points because it's actually quite a horrible thing. Oh yeah, this is yeah. What well, I'm yeah. saying, but terrible. Yeah. So different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon it each day. So they began with a general discourse of the body before moving on to an inspection of the key organs. I won't go into the details. And that uh, it, it basically got down to the skeleton, and the dissecting room. Because it took nine days, they had like an open wall at the back to keep the body cool. Okay, mm. it was November. But even then, I think nine days is kind of pushing things a bit. Mm. Apparently all that was left at the end were the hands and feet. They, they obviously weren't of as much interest. So, the Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century. That saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia and Dr Joseph Lister pioneer the use of antiseptic during surgery. But who was Dr Robert Knox? Yeah, I know, because you, you've got... Knox's house, Knox's building on the Royal Mile. Ah, yes, that's is a it? different Knox. Ah. Yeah, that's the religious one. Yeah. So I'll tell you about Dr. Robert Knox. He was an influential lecturer in the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department. Now, he may have had that high position in society, but in terms of his personality and character, well, let me just tell you a bit about him. He attended the Royal High School of Edinburgh and he was remembered as a bully who thrashed his contemporaries. At university, he failed his anatomy exam and had to retake it. After graduating from the university in 1814, he joined the army and was posted to Brussels, where he happened then to attend to the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. In 1822, he, he was a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons. And Knox became fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, during which time he was involved in setting up a major anatomical school and that's where he was famed for his gory lectures. But in terms of his character again, well, one thing, apparently he was obsessed with men's head sizes. So he measured the heads of men in Glasgow and in Edinburgh and discovered that Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. How would you interpret this scientific information? I don't um, know. <laughs> I don't think he did either. No, no. He did, he did, oh. yeah. He, he um, decided that, uh, well, obviously Glasgow men needed more space for this kind of engineering type stuff. But the Edinburgh brains were much better, more refined thinking. And so they didn't need such big heads in the city of learning. But he was also racially hostile to Highland Scots, Welsh people, and especially to Irish Celts. He openly advocated their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. Very pleasant character. So this is the man who's in charge of the dissections. Now, the Murder Act of 1752 stipulated that the only corpses that could be supplied were for executed murderers, but the Judgment of Death Act of 1823 
decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train medical students was growing. And they kind of needed about one cadaver per student to show the dissection. So what happened when the supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? I mean, I have seen a film. Um, As have I. Oh, yep. very good. <laughs> about Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't think Andy Serkis was historically accurate, but I imagine it was something to do with Birkenhead. Yes, we're, we're going in that direction, yes. So, uh, now, Broken Hair weren't actually grave robbers, oh. as such. Grave robbing was basically digging up bodies as soon as they'd been buried to then take them off for dissection and get money for it. Now, it wasn't illegal, technically speaking, to steal a body because no one owned a body, but disturbing a grave was. That's so a very interesting... It's an Al Capone type thing, you could get them on tax evasion, but not... Yeah. Anyway, anyway... <laughs> So these grave robbers were called resurrectionists. So how did rich families, because this was a big problem in places like Edinburgh, how did rich families try to stop their relatives from being exhumed? What sort of things might you do? Dig them up first? <laughs> no, it wasn't quite. Was going, That's fine, dude. You want to keep them in the ground, so what, how might you stop? Put them in a crypt? Yeah. Wait. So they had mort safes, they were called, like grave cages. Right, yeah. Which oh, were there you go. Over the, over, so you, like another a, point oh, if we had points. Any other ideas? We, you get, there's a, there's a big thing on the internet now where people see these cages and they go, well, this is evidence that there were zombies in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you do have to comment on the no, <laughs> not true. Unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, very fortunately. Yeah, well, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Any other ideas for how? Um, I guess you get guards. Um, so yes, uh, if you look around some of the cemeteries in Edinburgh, they had watchtowers, literally Ooh. people watching over the graveyards to stop any resurrectionists digging up the graves. And uh, Daniel Downey, who was on the panel about three days ago, gave a tidbit of information which I'd never heard before, which was saying that's how the term graveyard shift came about. Ah. Uh, another thing they did for families was they just purchased heavy stone slabs and put them over the graves, so it just made it very, very difficult to get underneath. Mm. Incidentally, I don't know if there's any Americans in today, but uh, America, the US, experienced something similar later in the 1800s and came up with some suitably American solutions. So, for example, Philip Clover, he patented the coffin torpedo in 1878 which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of a coffin was prized open. And Thomas Howell patented a shell buried under the coffin with wires so that if thieves triggered the wires, they would effectively set off a landmine. See, I'm, I'm trained as an archaeologist, and this makes me nervous. <laughs> um, Watch out for wires. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one advertisement for the Howell torpedo read, Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo, ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. <laughs> I uh, don't know if they sold many of these things, <laughs> but um, anyway, we're talking about Edinburgh. Mm. So, back in 1827, as you alluded to, Birkin Hare. They turned out to be Edinburgh's most prolific serial killers. And how it started was, these two guys were both Irish immigrants and they came to Edinburgh to work on the canal that was being built at the time, the Union Canal, in 1818. But at that point in 1827 they had a lodging house, um, or one of them did, and William Hare was owed £4 in rent by a lodger, 
an army pensioner named Old Donald, but Old Donald died. So one of Knox's students at the time gave Hare a tip-off that he would be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did, and he received seven pounds and ten shillings. So obviously the cogs were going and they thought, hmm, there's money to be made here, but where do we get fresh bodies from? So do you want to say a bit about what you know about Birkenhead? Um, well, I, 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 imagine, I, know, I think I know the story that everyone knows. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I know that they. It wasn't just grave robbing. I don't know if you were gonna. They wasn't. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm I'm putting on the spot. So uh, so they weren't grave robbers. What they did was they murdered yes. people, and then took them. So there was no sort of mm. exhumation involved. Okay. So what was their modus operandi? Because if you're taking a body that's obviously been shot mm. or, or murdered. That's, that's, that's going to give the game away. So what's a good way of killing... Um, I don't know why I'm looking at you when I say this. What's a good way of killing people um, um, <laughs> without it being obvious that you've stabbed them or shot po- them? Poisoning. Poisoning would be good, yeah. Strangling. Strangulation yeah. was their modus operandi, oh, yes. Okay. So they'd try and get them drunk, mm. these, these vagrants, these fellow lodgers. One of the guys would sit on them and the other one would try and suffocate them. And that would normally be enough although they did try to get an Irish woman drunk and she basically drank them under the table. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a story um, of just one of them, just, just, and they just keep going. And, yeah. it, 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 and if she had been onto the same, the same deal, they would have been ended, ended up in the, in the deception. Probably. So, and I don't know how much it cost uh, to, to, uh, in whiskey to drink under the table at that point. Oh, we've got to kill all these people to uh, make the money back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Burke apparently seemed more troubled than Hare by the pair's actions. Author George McGregor wrote, When he wakened, sometimes in fright, he would take a draught at the bottle, often to the extent of half of its contents at a time, that induced sleep, or rather stupor. Now, Burke and Hare were caught when a couple who was staying at the lodging house discovered the body of Margaret Doherty hidden under a bed. And the way that happened was... This couple were at the lodging house and they hadn't dealt with the body. So uh, Burke or Hare or both of them said, um, oh, uh, you can't go in there. And that immediately aroused the suspicions of this couple. So at the first opportunity they had a sort of pin and then found the body and then shouted for the police. So they got arrested, but there was no real evidence as such. They couldn't link them to the murders. And it happened 16 times, really. So um, how did they end up? I imagine there had to be. If you're killing this many people, someone would have seen it. I imagine there's a confession involved. Basically, they offered uh, King's evidence, and so Hare basically snitched on Burke, and Hare then got off scot-free by doing this, which seems very good. Um, 
However, it wasn't all plain sailing for Hare, because that was the right way of doing it. Uh, he was put on the stagecoach towards Dumfries, uh, I think maybe from the start of the night, but he was recognised because the court case had been attended by so many people, it was such an enormous night. He was spotted, so uh, people, a mob tried to get hold of him, and the police managed to get hold of him. And then the police sort of sneaked him off in the dead of night and set him up on the road to England. And that's the last of it. <laughs> And here he is! Zombies do it, So Burke was hanged for his uh, uh, for what he'd done on the 29th of January 1829. Um, what happened to his body? Oh, I know, it's not again. I imagine he ended up on the exact same slab that everyone else did. He was brought up after his execution, although not, not, not for nine days. Um, just to say about the execution, Edinburgh being Edinburgh, uh, people living in the tenements overlooking the scaffold were able to make a bit of extra money by hiring out their rooms for people to get a better view. Uh, anything from five to twenty cylinders each, and they only just sell accommodation to people titled before the prince. So <laughs> um, yes, Burke's body was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe at the anatomy theatre in Big College College building. Uh, many students arrived to see the dissection of the body and even had tickets to the event, but many more turned up and had tickets to the summer. I'm not my show. <laughs> but um, to some shows. Uh, uh, the bucket at the end. So the police had to control the crowd because again they were so, so keen to take part in another gory, gruesome event. Uh, this proceeding just lasted two hours. Uh, again, a gory side thing. Uh, Monroe, the professor of anatomy, he decided to dip a quill into Burke's blood and write the following sentence. I'm not sure where he wrote it, but uh, this is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Um, however, what happened to Burke's skeleton after the dissection? See it in the anatomical museum. Is that where the signature is written? It, it might be right. across the walls. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, his death, his death mask is in the museum as well, along with a little notebook which is bound with his skin. And uh, I'm largely informed by another comedian, so I don't know if that's right there's a much bigger volume found in the glass chips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether to believe that or not. So, um, so I wrote about hair and Greece. Um, what happened to the killer's wives? Because these guys are both married and they loved <laughs> They got a successful career. Love <laughs> Island or something. No. Uh, um, they actually got a scot-free as well, even though one of the wives, so William Burke's wife, Mary McDougall, she was brought to court to hear whether she'd found guilty or not, and, and she wasn't. Even though she tried to bribe a woman who found the murder victim to keep quiet, don't say anything, don't go to the police, which I think seems a little suspicious. She knew what was going on. And what happened to Dr. Knox? Because, you know, effectively he was an accomplice to murder. But he was a, like a high-ranking member of society, so 
Did he go to prison? No. But uh, he was actually kind of pushed out of polite society due to um, these people thought, sure about this guy. <laughs> Writing was better than blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I thought he was. Oh, right. he was yes. yes. But he did, um, Dr. Knox did keep dissecting people. Uh, so you have to find a way of making money, and it's all very popular with the students. Mm -hmm. so, so that kind of worked. So he was pushed out of polite society and ended up going to London, where he eventually died in 1863. If you know the answer to this one, I'll be worried. <laughs> How are Burke and Hare commemorated in Edinburgh? Uh, there might be a pub, but there's also a strip club. Um. <laughs> oh, it's bizarre, isn't it? So, of course, you can find their name if you get there. Makes sense. Yeah. So, you have mass murderers that And it's at Westport, which is very close to where the lodging house used to be. It no longer exists. It was at Tanner's Close, demolished in 1903. It's the site of what's now Argyle House. So, if you're walking up Westport, that's the 1970 building right outside, and you're walking up towards Birkenhead. Not that I'm suggesting any of you are going to say this. Um, there's a new word, Birkin, coined, which basically meant, it's quite specific, to smother a victim or to commit an, anat to commit an anatomy murder. So it's not really to be used in everyday conversations, but that was. And a rhyme circulated around Edinburgh, which was up the close and do the stone, Hunting Ben with Birkin Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief. Dogs the boy that buys the beef. Um, so any of this subject um, the Edinburgh section what effectively put an end to the drive for great Edinburgh? Cremation? Um, yeah, so uh, cremation in Scotland but in England was, was it was the passing of the Anatomy Act in 1832, so they, they saw there was, there was an issue here in terms of bodies and, and supplies. So they, one of the uh, parts of the Act was to change, so there was a legal supply of bodies, medical schools that can now include them, bodies unclaimed from other public institutions such as hospitals and working houses, and they could be given a that uh, freed up, if that's the right phrase, 400 such bodies in Edinburgh in the last century. William Cobbett had argued against the bill in the House of Commons. He said, they tell us it was necessary for science. Science? Why? Who is science for? Not for poor people. Then, if it is necessary for science, let them have the bodies of the rich, for whose benefit science is cultivated. Uh, our time is nearly up, we do have to go off soon. So, uh, I'd just like to thank my guests now to Alf and to Alex Hiscock. And uh, you feel free to applause <laughs> 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 if you want. Do you say what you're doing at the Fringe, if anything? Um, I'm at the One Liner Show every day, Dropkick Murphy's, um, uh, 12 o'clock now. show called The Silly Ad, uh, which is improvised myths and legends uh, every day at 2.10 up to the 21st, but not the, not the 15th, at um, just the top of the UK. Very silly 